believe Dave's going to come share a little bit about Operation Christmas Child, uh, and then I'll tell you what all these boxes are doing up here. All right, uh, so this last Sunday, we hosted our packing party back in Sun Chasers, and 223 boxes, which a lot of those were brought in this morning, uh, were packed by kids. So big, big thank you to those who brought in items to be donated. For those who served last week, I think the number was basically we had more people or as many people serving and working back there as we did in here last Sunday because it is a all-hands-on-deck type of event. So big thank you to those who served. Big thank you to those who uh, brought in your own boxes and packed your own boxes, as well as those who have served and continue to serve as uh, in our collection center and our drop-off location here, which is all these cardboard boxes here, are boxes that have been brought in, shoe boxes that have been brought in from area churches and other households, and this is kind of their their uh, their pause, and then from here they move on to their next uh, next stop along the way, eventually to get to their final destination. And so one encouragement, encouraging thing, somebody from Sun Chasers is going to pray this morning, and if you know, yes, great. Deva, come on up. Um, as she comes up, one encouraging thing. So in October, hi, Deva, um, we put uh, Bix Bixler in a box, okay? And uh, randomly on a Sunday, we said, hey, if you want him to wear a box when he substitute teaches, uh, give some money, all right? And then $2,100 came in, which is a communication of how much you love that man, okay? <laughs> Um, and so $2,100 came in. Typically on this Sunday, we give an offering to go toward the shipping of the boxes that are packed in Sun Chasers. So the math is $2,100, $93 more than we need has been raised to cover all that shipping. So today we will not give an offering because many of your households have already given an offering. And uh, God's provided long before we knew we'd have 223 boxes to send out, God provided. And so it is a uh, really, really encouraging. I'm going to let uh, Deva pray for the children and for these shoe boxes. You ready? Okay. Dear Jesus, we want to pray for these shoe boxes that people in the world can have them and they have joy to these boxes and then that they can be thankful to God and to be kind to one another, and to be, thank you, God, for these shoeboxes that we give to these children. Amen. Amen. All right. There you go, church. Church is the next generation is the church of today, not just tomorrow. So, uh, Kent, you want to come up, and Sun Chaser kids, enjoy class in the back. Good morning. Um, I want to thank you. For those who are here in person, those who are online for deciding to join us this morning as we worship God uh, who created us, who loves us, and who saves us. For those who may not know me, my name is Kent Heinrichsen. I am the youth and college pastor here at Crosspoint. And to begin uh, this message, I want to take you back in time and a history about 26 years ago. So not too long ago, but long enough that um, I wasn't born yet. So, on April 19th, 1995, some of you know that date, one of the deadliest domestic terrorist attacks happened in the United States to that date. Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, parked a rental truck full of explosives, explosives next to the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. The bombing killed 168 people and injured more than 680 others. 
Both bombers were caught, tried, and convicted in court. Terry Nichols was sentenced to life in prison while Timothy McVeigh received the death penalty. On June 11, 2001, McVeigh was executed by lethal injection, injection. And when it was time to have any last final words, McVeigh chose not to speak, but rather distributed a portion of the poem titled Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And to get context of the portion that he sent out, I'm going to read the entire poem. It's not very long. The poem starts as this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell of clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the goings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall not find me unafraid. And this is the part that McVeigh quoted and when he was sending it out to fellow prisoners and guards. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now what this poem conveys and what Timothy McVeigh was trying to communicate is this attitude of stubbornness. This thought that I am unbeatable. No one will be able to make me bow. I am in control. I am always right. And at the core of this attitude is this sin we call pride. One, com one commentator puts it this way, pride keeps the sinner from acknowledging he is wrong. Another uh, C.S. Lewis once said, pride is the mother hen under which all other sins are hatched. And finally, another commentator adds, Satan sees that we are constantly tempted by selfishness and pride it is not a problem we can get over. Rather, it is a condition that must be monitored at all times. This sin of pride is one that we find the Jews saturated in during the Old Testament period. Pride has led the Jews to trust in themselves, has led them to turn away from God's perfect law, and pride has led the Jews to a point where God has to punish or discipline them to turn them back to Him. And this is where we see the Jews when we read the book of Joel. If you haven't been here the past few weeks, we've been surveying some of the, the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We've seen this theme for a call to return or to turn away from sin and return to God. This call of turning away from sin and turning toward God. And this theme continues in this book of Joel. So if you have Bibles with you, please meet me in Joel chapter 1. Now, just to kind of give a quick context, this morning as we survey Joel, we're going to go through all three chapters. I want you to take note of a basic outline that I believe is on the screen. Yep, uh, the basic outline of the book of Joel. There's five distinct parts that I um, see when I was studying this, um, and other commentators agreed uh, similarly. Uh, one, you have the discipline of Judah. Two, the warning of judgment on Judah. Three, God's call for repentance. Four, God's restoration of the Jews and Five, God's judgment on the nations. This is the outline that, outline that we'll be using as we study Joel this morning. So I hope you have your thinking caps on. I hope you have your uh, pen and paper out because this is going to be more of a, an academic feel of a Sunday morning sermon. It's going to be more of uh, teaching and surveying these three chapters. So 
Um, as we do this, as we go through drill, I believe, though, at the same time, as much as it's going to be learning and more academic, I believe that we can find timeless truths that were uh, applied then and true then that are still true today as we um, study Joel. So, if you meet me in Joel 1, we'll go over the first point, the discipline of Judah. Now, in the first 14 verses of Joel, we see a plague of locusts. They have come into the land, and they have eaten and destroyed all crops and produce. We see this in the first four verses. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. What the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. The ten verses that follow this describe uh, the reaction, uh, a call to mourn their losses. Because in doing so, when mourning a loss, when mourning destruction, we should see our need for God. So, Joel 1.5 says, wake up you drunkards, and weep, wail, all you wine drinkers, because the sweet wine, for it has taken from your youth. Joel 1.11 says, be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers over the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Joel 1.13 says, dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests, wail, you ministers of the altar, come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. We see that the sin of the nation of Judah has caused destruction, has called God to discipline them. In doing so, God is calling them to cry out to them. Because this call for mourning, this call to cry out, is not one to call people to turn inward and sulk in themselves in their distress, but rather to turn upward. Joel 1.14 Announce a sacred fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, and gather the elders and all the residents of the land of, at the house of the Lord your God. And here's the key phrase, cry out to the Lord. This is where we find our first timeless truth in Joel as we survey Joel. Discipline exposes our need for God. Discipline exposes our need for God. Now, how does this happen? But when we are uh, living in a pattern of intentional sin without a repented heart, which is where we see the Jewish people in this context of Joel, when this happens, we are saying that a particular sin is more important than obeying God. We are saying that I think I know what is better. We are ultimately saying that we are unwilling to let down our pride and humble ourselves before God. When we are in that kind of a situation, that state of heart, when we are living for self, one way that God turns us away from our sin and toward Him is to discipline us. Godly discipline is meant to show us that our sin only leads to pain and destruction, as seen in Joel 1. And in doing so, godly discipline shows us that God is, should be the source of our joy, the source of our peace, and the source of of our life. Now, as we continue to survey Joel, we come to our second section of Joel in our outline, warning on the judgment of Judah. 
In this warning passage, as we uh, continue in, in chapter 1, we see this phrase, day of the Lord, um, appear multiple times. Joel 1.15 is an example. Woe, because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Joel 2.1, blow the ram's horn in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. Now, as we read this phrase, day of the Lord, there are multiple um, uh, things that that phrase can refer to. Uh, one, God's judgment on Israel, Judah, the Jewish people, and or foreign nations. Two, God's deliverance or blessing for Israel, Judah, and other nations. And three, the return of Jesus Christ. Now, since there is evidence that this book uh, of Joel has been written uh, before the exile of Judah, then the context of this passage, the day of the Lord, we can rightly interpret, can be read as referring to God's judgment on Judah and the Jewish people. And that judgment being exile from their land into Babylon. Now, God's judgment on Israel and Judah um, references uh, in this Old Testament is, can be seen as a foreshadowing event of when God will judge the entire world in the end times described in the book of Revelation. So when we read stories of judgment, yes, it's true for that particular season and in that context that we read it in, but also it's a foreshadowing of God's judgment at the end of time on sin, that that final judgment that we read in Revelation. Now, as we come back to Joel's uh, context uh, and reference of God's judgment on the world, we will read and study that more when we see Joel 3 at the very end of our lesson. But now, let's move on to our next section of our outline. So, as we continue to summarize Joel, we move to the middle part of Joel. Uh, God's call for repentance. We're halfway, okay? We're almost halfway. And this part of our survey of, of Joel comes the turning point of the book. It is one of the most exciting parts of the book of Joel. And just like how any good story that you read has rising actions, has a climax, and then has falling actions into the conclusion, uh, Joel 2, 12 through 17 can be seen as the climax of Joel. Because leading up to this point, we see God's discipline of Judah. We see God's warning of judgment. And here we see this beautiful change in direction in Joel. So let's read Joel 2, 12 through 14. Joel 2, 12 through 14. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your hearts, with feasting, with, with fasting, not feasting, fasting, weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind so you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. Here in this middle section of Joel, we see the mood shift. Before we've been reading how the Jews are in despair, uh, that how Judah will be in future despair in their judgment uh, because of their sin. But now in Joel's book, in the book of Joel, we see this prophecy of hope. Hope that if Judah repents, God would show grace and compassion to them. And it's here in the book of Joel that we come to our second timeless truth that we can 
uh, get from the book of Joel. And that is that there is hope for those who repent. There is hope for those who repent. And what is it exactly that we are hoping for? We are hoping that God wouldn't treat us as we deserve. Because the reality is, is that we are sinners. That we are just like the people of Judah. We throughout our lives have chosen our sins over choosing God. That's what happens when we intentionally sin. We are choosing whatever sin that is over choosing God. But we can have this hope that God won't treat us as we deserve because God is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in faithful love. And the only thing that God asks from us is that we repent and we return to Him. Now, what does it mean to repent? What does it look like? I think we get a really good description in the verses that we read, Joel 2, 12, um, and verses 13. Verse 12 says, Turn to me with all your heart. Now, this is not just some of it, all of it. Not most of it. No, all of it. Not all of it except for one tiny little piece. No, but all of it. Turn to me with all your heart, God says. Confess it. Bring your sin to God. Your lust, your pride, your self-dependency, your addiction, your gluttony, your selfishness, your laziness, your gossiping, your slandering, your outbursts of anger, your bitterness. Bring it all to God and repent and, return and turn with all your heart. Verse 13 adds this picture that we should tear our hearts, not just our clothes. This image of, of tearing clothes or, or ripping apart clothes is how people in the biblical times would have reacted to something that was repulsive and contrary to God's commands and God's word. And what this picture of tearing our hearts is, is getting at is that repentance is not just an outward action, but like the Jewish people, um, is not just an outward act like the Jewish people would have seen it, but rather repentance also needs to be in our hearts. We need to find that our sin is so repulsive in our hearts that we are disgusted by it, that we tear our hearts because of our ugliness of our sin. And that is what it means to repent and return to God when our sin is exposed, when it is revealed to us. And the amazing thing is, is, catch this, when we do this, we are not met with judgment. We are not met with judgment. It's not begrudgingly going to God and expecting the worst case scenario when we have to confess our sin to Him. No, we are met with compassion. We are met with grace. We are met with love. And this is because our God desires to be in relationship with you. The creator of the universe desires you. So come to him as you are, broken, broken with your sin, because our God is faithful to forgive us and meet us again with grace, compassion, and love. As we continue, as we finish up 
Joel chapter 2. We see our fourth point in our outline as we summarize the book of Joel. We see um, the fourth part is God's restoration of the Jews, chapter 2, verses 18 through 32. And in this part of the book, we see Joel prophesying that even though judgment will come, God will one day restore the Jewish people back to their land. So if you Meet me in Joel 2, verses 18, and we'll read through 20. Then the Lord came, became jealous for his land and spared his people. The Lord answered his people, Look, I am about to send you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. You will be saturated with them, and I no longer will make you a disgrace among the nations. I will drive the northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land his front ranks into the Dead Sea, his rear garden to the Mediterranean Sea, his stench will rise, yes, his rotten smell will rise, for he has done, done astonishing things. Now, in this first section of restoration, we see God restoring uh, Judah with a, a physical restoration. We see that God spares his people. He does not completely erase the Jewish people from the earth. He spares some of them. And then we see God restore their food supply and restore peace to their land. And God just doesn't stop with physical restoration of the Jewish people. He continues with a spiritual restoration. So let's continue reading Joel 28, uh, 2, 28 through 32. So jump ahead a couple verses to Joel 2, 28 through 32. After this... I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in heaven and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the survivors the Lord calls. Now, just a quick note. Up until this point in Joel's book, in Joel's prophecy, we have seen prophecy fulfilled later on in history. We know that the Jewish people experienced uh, God's judgment because they didn't repent. They were exiled into Babylon. And afterwards, uh, after spending time there and God granted them return to their homeland. And these are things that we see uh, towards the end of the Old Testament. God uh, restoring the Jewish people um, physically and giving them land and um, restoring their crops. Here in the passage we just read, though, we see a prophecy that has been partially fulfilled in history, but yet not fully. This, par- this prophecy has been partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, if in, in Acts chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there, because in fact, the day of Pentecost, uh, during the sermon, Peter references this very passage from Joel. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 14. Acts two fourteen says this. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews, and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Lost my place. Let this be known to you um, 
I explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. So some context to this passage is that um, uh, people receive the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. They are prophesying. They're speaking in tongues. They're showing all the spiritual gifts. And so um, you have other people in that city who is like, what's going on? These people seem like they're drunk. People who are acting a little crazy. So Peter then responds to them in Acts chapter 2, verses 14. It says, and 15, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what's spoken through the prophet Joel. Verse 17, and it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on the people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And I'll even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. They will display wonders in heaven above the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, we see that Peter even suggests that what Joel wrote was partially fulfilled in the sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Now, what I'm about to add and say um, is highly debatable among Bible, Bible scholars, and I recognize that people have differing views on prophecy that uh, um, has yet to happen or yet to be fulfilled. And so with that said, what I'm about to say is my humble opinion on the prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in Joel, that, um, that not only I, but multiple Bible scholars hold. So, you find it within yourself that you disagree with what I'm about to say about end times prophecy that Joel addresses in the later part of Joel 2 and Joel 3, feel free. And that's com- completely fine. If you really want to talk about it, invite me out to coffee because I love coffee and I would love to talk about end times prophecy with you. There's my disclaimer. So afterwards, you can't be in a rage that I take a certain position when it's highly debatable. Okay, so with that, this prophecy about God's outpouring of His Spirit has yet to be fully fulfilled because this passage indicates that God will pour out His Spirit among the Jewish people during the time of tribulation, which according to how I and many other Bible scholars' interpretation of Scripture, the church will be raptured before the tribulation, um, which according to, um, because of that, therefore, Joel talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord in verse 31 that we read in Joel. And and my understanding and my humble understanding of this text is that this refers to that God will restore the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, to himself fully and completely during the end times after the church has been raptured and tribulation has taken place. So, but partly why I hold this view on end times, and again, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I would love to talk about it afterwards. Part of the reason why I hold this view is because of Joel 3. So, let's move into our last section of our survey into Joel chapter 3. So, our last point in our outline as we continue to survey Joel is uh, the fact that God will judge the nation, that God's judgment on the nation is what we see here in Joel chapter 3. Joel 3 verses 1 and 2. Yes, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, 
It's where I get my flow of thinking. I will gather all the nations and take them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there because of my people, my inheritance Israel. The nations have scattered the Israelites in foreign countries and divided up my land. Joel then further describes what seems to be the battle of Armageddon that is referenced in Revelation. And then after that battle, we see that um, at the very end, God blesses Israel. God restores Israel fully. And this comes to our uh, final timeless truth as we wrap up, because I'm cutting a little short. Okay, last timeless truth. Those who do not repent are guilty for their sin. Those who do not repent are guilty for their sin. Just like those who, um, not just like, but just as those who repent and have hope, the other side of that same coin is that those who do not repent are declared guilty and sentenced accordingly as they are destroyed and spend eternity separated from God. Because in the end, it will be people's pride, an unwillingness to submit to God that will cause their downfall. As we see this, as Joel prophesies about this in Joel, the end of Joel 2 and Joel 3, the same goes for us. It might not be right away, but those who do not repent, those who do not trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who do not have a right relationship with God, we stand guilty. Those people who don't have that stand guilty because of their sin before a holy God. So whether it's the day you die whether it's um, when the rapture happens and you're left here and you go through that tribulation, which I hope on nobody, there will be a judgment day. A judgment day uh, that your verdict will be guilty. And that's hard to hear and that's hard to accept, but that's God's Word and we have to take that as truth. So I beg, I plead. I want to make it a point that doesn't have to be the case if that's where you're at this morning. That doesn't have to be the case. And so like Joel, I urge you, I, I beg you, turn and repent to God with all of your heart. Let go of the pride. Humble yourself and return to God this morning. Because again, in the end, it will, be, it will be people's pride and unwillingness to submit to God that will be the cause of their downfall. And this draws uh, a comparison in relation to the poem that we read to begin this message with. That people's pride, the, the thought that I am in control of my own life, that I am in control of my own soul, that I will not bow down to anybody, the reality is, is that yes, there will be a day where every person kneels and bows down before Jesus. And either you're accepted as a child, beloved child of God, or you're casted into eternity separated from God. Now, the difference between the context that Joel is writing to his audience and today is this. When people would hear Joel's message, the book of Joel, the prophet of Joel, the call to repent, they would have to sacrifice animals. 
they would have to go through uh, the, the, the process of what the law describes to uh, receive forgiveness of sins, to have a covering over their sins, a payment for their sin. The difference between the context of what we read in Joel and, t- and today is that that payment's already been paid. And that happened when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me and died for the sins of the world and covered that payment only if we trust and believe. And so again, we, for us, the thing we have to do is repent, to turn back to God. And this isn't just a message for those who have never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, um, because a lot of us can be sitting here and be like, well, I, I have a relationship with God, you know. I've done this when I was 13. I've done this, you know, when I, when I really struggled with outward acting uh, in a sinful way. I, I think this message of, of the book of Joel is a reminder for us who do stand and have a right relationship with Jesus, because the reality is we still sin. And we still need to repent for that sin. We still need to confess it. We still need to bring it before God every single day. Because the reality is, is we sin every single day. And so uh, this message uh, of returning to God is also one for us as we momentarily will sin and choose our sin over choosing God. So in that moment, when you find yourself in that, turn to God, repent. Come back, confess it. Why? Because he is faithful to forgive. He is slow to anger. He will show you compassion. He is gracious and abounding in faithful love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time that we can study the book of Joel. God, thank you that we can see your truth uh, through the Old Testament prophet, that we can uh, find these timeless truths. God, that you are faithful to forgive. God, that there is hope for those who repent and turn to you, and that hope is to be in relationship with you. God, I pray that we would take that seriously today that we would do some self-evaluation, that we would do uh, some, some heart surgery, open heart surgery, and look and see, God, where are we putting things above you? God, I pray that we would sit, reflect, and that we would confess it, and that we would repent of it. God, I pray that we would just have humble attitudes as we continue to walk with you. God, forgive us where we fail. God, thank you for always being there and loving us and showing us grace, compassion, and faithful love. God, we love you and we serve you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we close this morning's service, I want to read from Romans 10, another passage that quotes the book of Joel. Romans 10, 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.